Good morning, uh, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you find yourselves on, on the Earth's surface, surface uh, today. Um, before we begin, as a reflection of University of Sydney's recognition of the deep history and culture of the land on which it was built, I would like to acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand. Then they stand on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I also extend this acknowledgement to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people online with us today. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. My name is Gorana Gergic and I'm a senior lecturer at the United States Study Center in the Department of Government and International Relations. And uh, today uh, it is my great pleasure that I'll be able to talk about uh, some of the uh, areas that have interested me as a researcher, as a scholar, uh, but also that I believe uh, many of you, if you are followers of international politics and global affairs uh, for work or for punishment, uh, would have had a hard time escaping. Uh, what I'm talking about is the, the kind of very palpable change of the dominant paradigm when it comes to studying and analyzing interstate relations over the good part of the past decade. Uh, namely, while it, it's not really uh, a kind of been determined what the exact date might be uh, when we change the paradigm, it's uh, these days safe to say that we find ourselves in an era of great power competition. Challenges to the United States, um, particularly when it comes to its uh, relations with China and with Russia are frequently and sometimes adamantly argued to constitute a new Cold War. And who better to talk to than uh, to one of America's leading historians of US foreign policy and a former Pentagon advisor who has spent a good part of the past couple of years certainly thinking about these things, uh, about the lessons of Cold War and the way that they apply to the United States today. Uh, so with great pleasure, I have with me uh, Professor Hal Brands, who has just recently published uh, uh, his latest monograph uh, called The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About the Great Power Rivalry Today. Hal is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies and a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a prolific and regular columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And prior to his academic career or in between his academic uh, careers, he served as a special assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Strategic Planning in the latter years of the Obama administration. And he has also served as a lead writer for the Commission on the National Defense Strategy for the US and consulted with a range of government offices and agencies in the intelligence and national security communities. 
So before we kick off our conversation, just a couple of housekeeping notes uh, for you today. We do encourage you to become part of this discussion and ask questions as we go along. This can be done at any time by typing them into the Q&A box that you can see on your screens. You can then ask and vote for questions and a selection of them. Uh, I will make sure that they get answered, uh, particularly towards the end of our discussion. And apart from uh, this event, being streamed uh, on Zoom and, and YouTube. Uh, we are recording it for later access on the US Study Center's media channels. So uh, you can go back and uh, re-watch us or if you can't make it all the way to the end, uh, you can certainly find us there uh, very swiftly after we are done with the seminar, uh, with the webinar today. So that's uh, all about the logistics. Now uh, we are kicking off uh, the conversation in earnest. So uh, Hal, uh, you have been a regular uh, feature of a lot of podcasts that I subscribed to over the past couple of months. And obviously this is all part of your uh, book tour. And uh, I've really struggled to, to kind of find a kickoff question that isn't really, you know, what brought you to writing this book or what motivated you uh, to write this book. I hope we get to that answer. But um, when we talk about Cold War parallels, what I am interested in uh, from your uh, point of view uh, sitting in DC or, or uh, thereabouts, um, what would you say, where is the United States these days? Are we kind of, you know, uh, in terms of the early post-World War II period, are we closer to 45 or to 50, you know, closer to the long telegram of 46 or the X article of 47? Uh, what's what's the, the kind of consensus, uh, would you say? Do we have a strategy that has uh, been figured out or are we just in, in term in, in kind of the, the kind of um, we have a sense of what the paradigm is, but we are still looking for a strategy. Well, it's, it's a great question to start with. And thank you, Garana, uh, for having me here. As, as you know, I'm a, a fan of your work. So it's a, a good opportunity to have a conversation. Um, with respect to the, the particular question, um, I think it, it we're in a little bit of a, an in-between space right now uh, in Washington. And so What's interesting about the early Cold War is that you go from the end of World War II, um, the late summer of 1945, and it's only about, what, six months before George Kennan writes The Long Telegram in early 1946, um, which is you know, seen to, to provide, I guess, the problem diagnosis that underlies the containment policy. And then it's another 16 months or so before he publishes the X article uh, in the interim, you'd had the Truman Doctrine, you'd had the Marshall Plan, you'd had a variety of things that both start laying the intellectual groundwork for containment, but then also laying the policy groundwork, putting together concrete policies that uh, began the process of building the post-war order and containing the Soviet Union. Uh, and so it, it's the point, I guess, is that it was a, actually a pretty compressed period of time between the end of World War II and the emergence of the containment strategy, even though the strategy itself evolved considerably uh, over the years and decades that followed. So, so where are we today? Well, um, in some ways we are uh, further advanced than we were in say 1947, 
in the sense that a lot of the tools that we might use to compete with China already exist, right? And so at the beginning of the Cold War, there was no NATO, right? There was no global network of US military uh, alliances. The whole uh, infrastructure of the post-war order was very nascent if it existed at all. That, that's different today. And when we think about the institutions, for instance, that we might use to compete with China, many of them already exist. The alliances already exist. Institutions like the Quad or AUKUS uh, exist or have been created uh, recently. Uh, we're trying to use groups like the Group of Seven uh, on, on economic and infrastructure issues. And so in, in that sense, the discussion, the policy discussion is perhaps more advanced than it was in 1947, but in other ways, it's, it's not quite as advanced as it was in 1947. And so I, I think we've achieved consensus in the United States that we have a problem vis-a-vis -vis China, that our expectations of what China would become uh, during the post-Cold War have not been fulfilled, that we face a serious challenge from a country that is becoming increasingly explicit about its desire to be the primary power in Asia and globally uh, eventually. But where I think we are not as far along is that no one has really articulated, at least in government, at least publicly, the theory of victory that would be equivalent to uh, what Kennan enunciated in the X article in particular. And so the X article, uh, just for reference, I mean, it was about 90% diagnosis, but it was about 10% prescription and basically said, here's how the United States and its, its friends will ultimately win this competition by holding the line until and exerting counter pressure until the Soviet Union, um, until the regime basically either collapses from within or, or mellows. We, we haven't had that level of clarity in dealing with China, in part because I think there's a lot of disagreement over you know, what success in this competition looks like. And so perhaps that's another subject we can talk about. But in that respect, I think we're still sort of, the, the parallel would be you know, late 1945, early 1946. That's great. And then maybe on that question of a, of a consensus, you've written much about um, how there wasn't uh, a lot of consen consensus actually on containment of the Soviet Union as many now assume uh, there is. And kind of in hindsight, it all seemed to have fallen into place, but even uh, Kennan later on became a sort of critique uh, of uh, a critic of, of uh, containment. Uh, and it certainly faced criticism on both left and the right for even be, for, for either being too harsh or not harsh enough. Um, so optimally, uh, when we talk about consensus, uh, what are you hoping this consensus to bring in? What are potentially some perils um, down the line as, as we see it develop? Yeah, we engage in a lot of retrospective myth-making about the Cold War. And I think you touched on two of the biggest myths. I mean, one myth is that we were always united as a nation or as a free world and trying to contain Soviet influence, that wasn't true. There were angry debates about um, containment and its various manifestations. And the other myth, of course, is that containment was sort of set down in stone in 1947 and, and remained that way for the next 42 or 44 years. And in reality, uh, what containment meant in practice uh, varied a lot from administration to administration. And a number of presidents came into office hoping to reject or planning on rejecting the concept before they kind of made their way back to it. 
So when we think about a consensus in the U.S.-China competition, it'll be a similarly messy consensus if one does, in fact, take shape and endure. And so the United States, there's bi- in the United States, there's bipartisan consensus today that China is uh, America's foremost geopolitical competitor. Across the political spectrum, views of China have become much more negative over the past five years, and particularly over the past two years as a result of COVID. And there's furthermore a consensus that the United States is not doing enough to protect its interests vis-a-vis China today. But but that's about where the consensus ends. And so, um, you know, there are big debates over what sort of industrial or technological policy the United States should pursue. There are debates over when we think the Chinese uh, challenge to the balance of power in the Western Pacific will become most severe. There are debates about um, how uh, how thoroughly the United States should prioritize the China challenge versus the Russia, Russia challenge or other legacy threats that the United States and its allies um, confront. And obviously, the China issue is going to become deeply politicized in the United States. That's just the nature of our political system. And that was the case really throughout the Cold War. The period of true bipartisan agreement on Cold War policy lasted about two years, uh, from early 1947 to uh, the 1948 election. So I think when we think about a consensus, we need to understand that you know consensus doesn't imply perfect continuity and it doesn't imply perfect agreement. And in fact, it would be a problem if it did, because one of the advantages of the American political system and of democratic political systems more broadly is that they create lots of room for debate about specific policies, even when you have agreement on an overarching objective. You asked about the dangers of, of consensus. Um, you know, there always there is always the danger that foreign policy becomes politicized in an unhelpful way. That there, you know, perhaps there will come a point in the US-China relationship where what is really needed is to decrease the intensity of the rivalry and focus on common interests. It's sort of hard to foresee now, but that that could happen. And you could theoretically uh, find that, you know, the, the China issue has become so deeply embedded in American politics that that's difficult to do. There are obviously parallels during the Cold War in the sense that there were times um, where uh, anti-communism was weaponized for really destructive political ends in the United States. You can think of the McCarthy period, for instance. And so there are, there are certainly dangers to this as well. Yeah, and I think that's a great point in terms of just the domestic implications. Um, some of them uh, I've also heard you uh, allude to have even led to more uh, progressive reforms in the United States, but equally uh, McCarthyism being obviously the opposite uh, uh, example. Um, so when we talk about containment not being a monolith and uh, really being kind of uh, vague in some sense that you you could actually kind of play around with with the various uh you know the the kind of instruments that are being used or kind of the focus on particular relations and and so on so we definitely can think about the periods of easing tensions, the detente under Nixon, a uh, good part of or most of uh, Carter's presidency, and then again, the kind of escalating tension and, and rollback under, uh, uh, under Reagan. Um, 
you already mentioned that um, presidential leadership matters a lot in figuring out uh, where where the the kind of road might take uh, the the strategy, if, if you will. Um, but do you see any other factors that might actually accelerate some of the the kind of you know either the competition and, and assertiveness or uh, the 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 easing of of the tensions that we've seen over the past couple of years? I think this is one of the big debates in U.S. foreign policy, particularly within the Democratic Party today. And um, it's interesting, you know, COVID obviously accelerated the U.S.-China rivalry in a really significant way. And so uh, prior to March 2020, I think President Trump was actually pretty ambivalent about China policy. He was putting lots of economic pressure on China and calling it out rhetorically. But I think his objective was really to get sort of a deeper, more comprehensive economic relationship with China and the phase one trade deal that was signed in January 2020, just as we were all starting to hear about this thing called COVID, was a good example of that. Uh, Trump turns around dramatically, uh, really beginning in March and April 2020, when he realizes what the pandemic is going to do to the United States and, and frankly, is going to do to his reelection prospects. And so if you talk to people uh, who served in the Trump administration, what they'll often say is that they were able to get more done on China policy in the nine months after March 2020 than they were able to do in the three years prior to that in terms of uh, technological sanctions, in terms of the campaign against Huawei, in terms of uh, a variety of, of other things. And so we saw COVID act as a big accelerator of the, of the rivalry. There is, I think, some hope um, at least among some, particularly in the Democratic Party, that the sort of transnational challenge that COVID represents might actually serve as a mitigating factor in the China rivalry. And so when you ask people, what, what are the potential areas of U.S.-China competition, they all, I'm, I'm sorry, U.S.-China cooperation, I should say, they often point to two. Uh, the first would be you know, uh, detecting and responding to future pandemics uh, so that they do not become nearly as crippling as COVID has been. And the second is uh, slowing and grappling with the consequences of climate change. Now, I think the, the first one, unfortunately, is unlikely to be an area, an area of U.S.-China cooperation. I mean, to, just to be perfectly frank, China has shown literally zero interest in genuine cooperation on learning about or mitigating the spread of this pandemic, uh, in part because I think they worry about what it would do to the legitimacy of the regime. And so if the solution or one of the ways that you mitigate the damage of future pandemics is through much increased transparency, uh, I think we're not going to get that um, from Xi Jinping's China. Uh, and so there's, there's unlikely to be a, mit a mitigating effect there. The, on climate, I think the answer is kind of maybe. And so one of, the, one of the debates, I think, within the Biden administration is whether climate is sufficiently important that the United States should potentially make concessions on geopolitical issues to get Chinese cooperation to slow the effects, slow and mitigate the effects of climate change. I think the Biden administration decided they weren't going to do that, that that was probably going to be uh, a fool's errand and it would create um, it would create perverse incentives for, for China. 
But I think there is still some hope that this could serve as an area where the U.S. and China have common interests. Both of them will ultimately be in trouble, uh, as will the rest of the world, uh, if we have the most severe effects of climate change that are currently uh, predicted. And so perhaps you can get cooperation there that will have a tempering effect on the overall rivalry. That's possible, but I think that's a few years down the road as well um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that the current American position on climate change isn't exactly set in stone. And if you get a Donald Trump presidency in 2025, the United States is gonna become a lot less interested in international action on climate change. The second reason though, is that I think the Chinese haven't yet given up on the idea of linking climate to other geopolitical issues. And so when the Biden administration said in the summer of 2021, we would like to engage on climate issues, but it's separate from the rest of the relationship, the Chinese government said, oh, no, it's not, right? And if you want uh, our constructive help on climate, you've got to address your destructive policies on Hong Kong and Taiwan and Xinjiang and, and you name it. And so we're at a little bit of a standoff right now. I think the Biden administration's calculus is if they hold firm, the Chinese will ultimately realize we're not going to move off our position and that it is, none, it is in China's interest to cooperate with us on climate. But it remains to, to be seen whether that will actually be the case. So in terms of that compartmentalization um, of you know, hard security versus non-traditional security issues, climate change, we can have some hope at least, and pandemics probably uh, that, that ship has, has long sailed. Um, what about the Cold War lessons, uh, arms control, for instance? Uh, how optimistic uh, are you about some of these issues, which we obviously know were actually uh, where, where a lot of diplomatic effort and, and talking uh, um, went, went on during the Cold War years? So I think there's good news and there's bad news if you want to look to the Cold War for lessons here. The, the good news is that the United States and the Soviet Union ultimately did quite a lot together to address areas of common interest. And so um, the nuclear non-proliferation regime, which I think has been remarkably successful in slowing the spread of nuclear weapons, was a product of uh, primarily U.S.-Soviet agreement during the 1960s. Uh, around the same time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union undertook uh, a joint uh, campaign through the UN to uh, eradicate smallpox, which was then killing about 2 million people a year, mostly in the global South. And that was also very successful. There were a variety of um, arms control deals that emerged mostly from the late 1960s onward to cap the size uh, and, and cap certain capabilities uh, in the US and Soviet nuclear uh, arsenals, and some of them actually were, were quite important. So the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, which was ultimately uh, signed in late 1987, eliminated an entire class of superpower nuclear weapons. And so that, that was a remarkable achievement. The, the bad news is that uh, you had to get through a period of pretty severe crisis before the United States and the Soviet Union concluded that it was in their interest to really uh, tackle a lot of these issues diplomatically. And, and so in the late 1950s and early 1960s, you had two uh, very dangerous crises involving Berlin, uh, and you had, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in all three cases, there were genuine fears, not just of war, but of nuclear war uh, between the superpowers. And it was really the experience of the Cuban crisis in particular that pushed US and Soviet leaders to start 
trying to, to set rules for the relationship and identify areas where their interests converged during the 1970s uh, and after. The other piece of bad news was that, um, you know, all of the diplomacy in the world really couldn't transcend the basic difficulties and the basic differences in the U.S.-Soviet relationship. Those differences, they were ideological, they were geopolitical, they were just very, very deeply rooted. And so the diplomacy that we often associate with the end of the Cold War was really possible mainly because the Soviets were in such a weak position and the United States had taken such a commanding position that the U.S. was able to get a series of decidedly asymmetric deals, the INF Treaty, the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, uh, the agreement leading to the reunification of Germany in 1990. And so it's really important to think about diplomacy as a tool of, of competition, a way of managing tensions, a way of um, sort of walling off certain areas of the relationship. But we can't really think of it as a substitute for, for competition. And I think that, that would have been a mistake during the Cold War, and it would be a mistake now. And so that's a point, again, uh, by, by listening to all of those podcasts, which I would recommend that you listen to after you're done with our webinar today, you made this point about um, diplomacy not being seen as a concession or a kind of way of appeasing uh, the, the competitor, but rather as an essential part of the competition, right? And uh, maybe this is some, something that often, you know, in, in kind of... Uh, uh, the commentary and, and uh, you know, just the, the kind of everyday newspaper type analysis, we see, you know, diplomacy being presented as something that is kind of uh, an act of weakness, basically, right? Um, so if we if we could sum it up then in, in kind of a couple of, of sentences, your take on that, and how do you change that perception? Um, uh, or can you at all? Diplomacy is not equivalent to appeasement, you know, as, as you say, right? And so di diplomacy can be a smart tool for keeping tensions from getting out of hand. It can be a way of shifting a competition into areas that favor you. So one of the, the benefits of the arms control agreements of the 1970s was that by capping the numeric arms race, they put more emphasis on the qualitative arms race, how, how good your nuclear weapons and your nuclear missiles were which favored the United States. And they can be way, uh, diplomacy can be a way of translating strengths that you build very patiently over time into concrete political achievements. And so the, uh, the way I just like to frame it is that you should think of diplomacy as a tool in the competitive arsenal, just like military power, just like economic power, just like informational uh, power. And so don't treat it as something that is that is separate or is, you know, inherently uh, the, the the preserve of appeasers or peaceniks, because it's not. Excellent. And that brings me actually uh, to, to the next question, which uh, relates to net assessments. So um, the late, uh, and that's recently late, Professor Bob Jervis liked to say that, you know, when you're analyzing your opponents, you tend to think that they are, I don't know, 10 feet tall and they're uh, kind of omnipotent and, and uh, that, that you really stand no chances. But you just talked about the various tools that the United States possesses. And certainly this um, kind of idea of net assessments, which uh, I will ask you to explain rather than me, 
me standing on a soapbox and, and putting on an academic head, uh, was an invention of the Cold War period. And it's part of the uh, various uh, kind of bureaucratic innovations and, and scholarly uh, pursuits that were taken during the Cold War. If we took that sort of approach, what does it tell us about the, the present state of the United States vis-a-vis -vis its competitors, China primarily, and then uh, Russia as we move further into the conversation? Sure. So, so net assessment was, as you mentioned, a discipline that really emerged during the Cold War for comprehensively com comparing the strengths and weaknesses of uh, competitors. And it sort of got its start um, in you know, comparing the damage that the US and the Soviet Union would both experience in a nuclear uh, exchange. And then it, it became sort of a broader approach to military analysis uh, during the 1970s, but then became even broader still. And so during the late 1970s, the Carter administration undertook something called the Comprehensive Net Assessment Project that basically tried to figure out where the overall balance of strengths and weaknesses lay in the Cold War. And they concluded, rightly as it turned out, that the United States was actually in a much better position than the headlines might have made you think during the late 1970s, that uh, its power was much more broadly based and, and comprehensive than Soviet power was. It had real alliances, whereas the Soviet Union didn't have any real alliances uh, by that point. And so in a long Cold War, the United States would be well-equipped to succeed so long as it didn't you know, lose the Cold War in the, in the short term. I think that's actually really useful to keep in mind today. And so um, if you made me choose between uh, you know, having the position of Xi Jinping or having the position of the president of the United States, I'd, I'd take you know, Joe Biden's position every day of the week and twice on Sunday, because I think that you know, while we while our our problems are, you know, they're out there, they're they are real, they are severe in certain ways, and they are the subject of discussion every day in the United States and around the world. China's problems, I think, are actually much more uh, severe and much more potentially crippling. If you look at the demographic implosion that's coming, if you look at um, the debt bu bubble that's going to have to burst at some point, if you look at the slowdown of the economy, the, the number of enemies that China seems to be making you know, every month, uh, every week, even in international affairs, I think China is going to have real problems catching up to the United States or achieving its geopolitical objectives over time. I, I think this, I, this idea that really took hold in the last decade that China was destined to surpass the United States and we were going to get a hegemonic transition, I, I think that's actually quite unlikely. What I, what I worry more about is uh, say the next 10 to 20 years of the competition because China has developed some really formidable uh, coercive capabilities. Military power, certainly, the balance of power in the Taiwan Strait, for instance, has, has shifted radically in China's direction over the past two decades. Um, technological tools of coercion, economic tools of coercion as well. One of the things that's really interesting, uh, and I don't need to explain this to an Australian audience, uh, is that China has been applying uh, economic sanctions and economic coercion quite liberally in disputes. What's interesting, by the way, about its current dispute with Lithuania is that it's now trying to do sort of the Chinese equivalent of American secondary sanctions, where you, where you don't just constrain your own economic dealings with the target country, you try to constrain everybody else's economic dealings with them as well. And so the, the threat has been that, uh, you know, if multinationals do business with Lithuania, they're not going to be able to do business 
uh, with China. And, and that that really is an interesting uh, innovation, and it will be interesting to see how, how well it works. But the, the point I'm sort of working my way around to here is that I, I think the danger in the US-China competition is probably going to be most severe in the next, say, 10 to 15 years, because I think that's when China is going to have its best chance to upset the existing order in, in fairly fundamental ways, whether that's by retaking Taiwan or otherwise shifting the, the balance of power. And so, you know, one of the, the points that uh, I try to make in the book is that even in a competition that lasts decades, there are points where it's more intense and points when it's less intense. And I think we're actually moving into a period when the China rivalry is going to be more intense. So the proverb of may we live in um, interesting times seems to be the one that, that would apply uh, to, to uh, the, the coming decades. Um, so certainly it will give us plenty to, to analyze, to study, to write more books about. Uh, but uh, I, given that we've just crossed the, the mark of half uh, of our time uh, today, I do want to move a bit to the present actually, and, or get us back to the present uh, because there is this sort of tyranny of presentism and uh, I'm uh, calling in from Europe at the moment and all eyes seem to be on Europe um, or most eyes seem to be on, in Europe despite some of the travels uh, on, on part of the uh, Secretary of State, US Secretary of State that is. Um, but um, this question of, you know, um, grand strategies are all well and great, uh, but but they always get muddled by reality and by uh, the challenges of today. And certainly uh, Vladimir Putin is serving those uh, very regularly, uh, seemingly around the times of, uh, of various Olympic games. Um, so um, the question, uh, first of all, in your opinion, um, the, the kind of magnitude uh, and, and the scope of Russia's challenge and, and threat uh, here, is it commensurate with um, that of China or is it something entirely different? Um, and how do you think uh, this plays into uh, the whole, you know, aimed for the United States not to be as invested in uh, European theater and to, to look uh, towards uh, the Pacific, obviously something that it strived to do already uh, during the Obama administration, but uh, again, got distracted uh, along the way. Well, the, the threat from Russia is not commensurate. It's not co-equal, but it's still very serious and, and very important. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, remember when I started writing the book, one of the most common questions I got was, why are you talking about great power competition with Russia in the same breath as great power competition uh, with China? I think uh, President Putin has helped me make that case uh, over the past uh, couple of months. He He has a really remarkable tendency every time uh, we forget that we are uh, facing two great power competitors rather than one. He has a way of reminding us of that fact. I, I think the, the Russian and the Chinese challenges are quite different in the sense that the Chinese challenge is both greater and more comprehensive. And so China has the ability to um, threaten the international system, per perhaps to uh, try to upend the international system in a variety of dimensions, economic power, uh, diplomatic influence, 
ideological example, um, military power, you, you name it. Russian power is more narrowly based uh, in part because the Russian economy is just far less impressive than the Chinese uh, economy is. And so I don't think of Russia as posing a threat to create some sort of Russo-centric world order. I don't think that idea has much attraction for, for anyone outside of Russia. And I don't think Russia has the power to impose it, uh, even if it had the desire to impose it. I think what, what Russia can do is to pretty fundamentally disrupt the functioning of the existing world order, whether by trying to recreate the old Soviet sphere of influence, projecting power into the Middle East or other regions, or using informational tools to meddle in political processes in, in Europe and the United States and, and other places. And, and we're seeing you know, how, how severe that threat can be today. And so if Vladimir Putin does mount a major invasion of Ukraine, this is going to be the biggest war that Europe has seen since World War II. Uh, mo most likely, uh, in terms of the conventional use of force, it's going to create a really grave security crisis along NATO's eastern flank, and it's going to demand significantly more American attention and engagement over time. And this is where the grand strategy question becomes really interesting, because I think the Biden administration's theory of foreign policy is basically the same theory of foreign policy that every U.S. administration has had since about 2011, which is that we need to focus less on things outside of Asia so that we can focus more on the big problem within Asia, which is China. And not once has it turned out like we planned. And so the Obama administration's pivot to Asia was derailed by, wait for it, a crisis in Ukraine and a crisis in the, the Middle East. Uh, the Trump administration's pivot to a competition with China was complicated by its confrontation with Iran. And now we're dealing with the very same issues to today. And so I think the, the reality, and, and here's an interesting Cold War parallel, but we, we may be where we were in sort of the late 1940s, where the United States had uh, established a global system of commitments to, to various countries that it meant to protect from communist influence, but really didn't have the resources to do it if those commitments were tested. And I, I worry we're in a little bit of a similar situation right now, where we have a, a foreign policy that we try to focus more and more regionally on the biggest problem, which is China, which is natural. But the, the reality is that we still have these very important commitments in other regions. And when they are threatened, we feel as though we have to pull back and focus on them. So that's a little bit of the trap that we've gotten ourselves stuck in so far. And I think that the Biden administration is experiencing that same thing today. And another thing that I would add is a bit similar to those uh, early years of the Cold War is the chumminess between Putin and Xi, right? Um, and um, I've heard you make this point, but I would like to hear your thoughts on um, just the, the the sort of you know alignment or alliance between uh, Russia and China, and especially what we've seen on part of the Biden administration prior to the most recent and buildup uh, of, of Russia's troops uh, on its Western borders and uh, around Ukraine. Uh, and that was basically this effort to try to uh, engage with Russia, to find areas of uh, cooperation even, right? Uh, that uh, I think if I, if I got you right, you're not that optimistic about, at least not in the, the short run. Why so? 
So there's an interesting factoid I heard the other day, which is that the Russian Far East is now more denuded of military assets than at any time since 1941, when uh, German forces were, were literally at the gates of Moscow. Uh, of course, this is related to the buildup vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, but it testifies to the security that Russia feels vis-a-vis China, which is really quite remarkable. I mean, one of the reasons that the Soviet Union lost the Cold War is that it ended up ended up fighting a two-front struggle against the West and against China, and it, and it couldn't bear that. Now, Russia is, is really able to focus its energies uh, on the West and on Ukraine because it doesn't have face any meaningful security threats or even political challenges from, from China. This is a problem for the United States, and we're seeing more and more cooperation between our, our two chief adversaries. And so the geometry of triangular diplomacy is definitely not working in our favor these days. This is one of the reasons why, again, both of the last two administrations, heck, even the Obama administration before that, really, I think, tried to put US-Russia relations on a more stable footing. There wasn't a reset this time around, but I think there was a hope that you could create greater stability in the relationship in a way that would allow you to deprioritize Europe a little bit and, and focus more on China. I, I think you know that's not necessarily based on a hope that you can split the two countries apart, sort of pull the reverse Kissinger and, and make Putin your ally vis-a-vis -vis Xi Jinping. I think people mostly realize that that's unrealistic, but, but you at least want to limit the liability in one theater so you can focus on another. I think that the problem is that it's just incompatible with what Putin wants. And so the question that emerges is, you know, what price would you have to pay to get relations with Russia in a good, good enough place that you were no longer worried about crises on NATO's eastern flank? Well, we, we know the answer to that, right? Because the Russian foreign ministry gave us uh, the draft treaties in December, and those were outlining basically what Putin's price would be uh, not to come to a comprehensive detente with the United States, but just not to invade Ukraine, right? And, and the price that he specified uh, was basically roll back NATO's posture to where it was in 1997 and do things that would really sever some of the links between the United States and Europe, like stop stationing nuclear, you know, relinquish the right to station nuclear weapons on European, American nuclear weapons on, on European soil. Uh, and the Biden administration has obviously rejected that uh, out, out of hand. And so I think that the real problem is just that we face parallel challenges and increasingly convergent challenges between Russia and China right now. And so we're probably looking at a dual containment type mission for the next 10 to 15 years. That could change over time. I mean, one of the things that did happen eventually during the Cold War is that the Soviets and the Chinese got really sick of each other and they had a big falling out in the 1960s that opened the door to a much better Sino-American relationship. There are still some historical tensions between uh, China and Russia. There are areas such as Central Asia where it's possible their interests could uh, come into conflict. There's not a lot of deep love between uh, the two countries, but, but I think that's a relatively distant prospect. I think we're talking about something that would happen after Putin leaves power because his confrontation with the West is pretty thoroughly personalized uh, at this point. And, and so it's not uh, a possibility that we can avail ourselves of anytime soon. The one bit of good news is that uh, the US plus its allies in Europe, plus its allies in the Indo-Pacific 
still outweighs Russia and China together by a significant margin, geopolitically, economically, and so on and so forth. And so it's it's a hard thing to do, but it's not impossible. And we'll get to the question of allies in a second, but I wanted to address one of the questions that we received also in the Q&A box and that I had jotted down, which is one on um, the uh, lessons from Ukraine and its implications for Taiwan. And if I'm not mistaken, this is also a subject of your latest column for, for Bloomberg. So uh, if you could give us a, a sneak peek for those that don't have subscription. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the, the first thing I think it's important to make clear in any discussion of Ukraine and Taiwan is that the situations are not perfectly analogous by any means. And it's important to avoid the trap that we sometimes fall into of saying, okay, if, if we don't prevent Putin from doing something bad vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, then Xi Jinping is gonna do something bad vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan the next day. I think if, if Xi Jinping does decide to use a greater degree of coercion or force vis-a-vis Taiwan, it will be for his own reasons on his own timetable. But there are, I think, some interesting lessons that we can draw from one crisis um, and apply to the Taiwan situation. And so, um, you know, the Ukraine crisis has in some ways served as a test case of whether the United States and its allies can preload sanctions that it would use to punish uh, aggression against an important country. I think that that same approach would probably figure pretty prominently uh, if China were to attack Taiwan, not necessarily as a substitute for a direct defensive of Taiwan, but perhaps as uh, a complement. And again, I think there's good news and, and bad news here. I think the, the good news is that we've seen that it is possible to a degree. The bad news is that we've seen that it's hard even among close allies to get agreement on what those sanctions uh, might be. I think the Ukraine crisis makes uh, an argument for you know beefing up the U.S. and allied military posture near Taiwan before a crisis begins, because it will become more sensitive and more difficult to do that once a crisis unfolds. I think it shows us things about the importance of deeper cooperation to address uh, cyber threats uh, in Taiwan, because we see the way that Ukraine is being subjected to uh, cyber coercion today. And there are a variety of other things uh, as well. And so it's, it's not necessarily the case that these situations are the same. They're not. But when we think about things that we might need to do to help Ukraine preserve uh, its status uh, against a sharper Chinese threat, we, we can draw some useful lessons from the Ukraine crisis. That's great. And uh, given that we have around 10 minutes left or so, I'm going to fast forward to uh, the role of allies and partners. And then maybe uh, if we have time, and I hope we do, to address some of the, the kind of in-between countries and maybe the, uh, the, the sort of analogy to the, the non-aligned um, of the Cold War. So um, you already uh, actually alluded to this question around the buy-in from allies. I think um, when it comes to, again, Cold War mythologizing, it, as you called it, um, we do tend to sometimes overstate the, the buy-in from U.S. allies uh, and the kind of unity and, and command structure uh, we've already, you know, we... If, 
for students of history, for sure, you know, 60s, for instance, tend to be the, the kind of interesting time. Um, so fast forward uh, to today, we uh, definitely have seen that some of the foremost US allies have come to the same sort of diagnosis of the, the challenges that are posed by China and to an extent by, by Russia, we are kind of getting there. Uh, but um, there is still plenty of them who aren't, um, you know, completely sold uh, or have really legitimate economic interests in not seeing the, the competition sharpen. Um, lessons from the Cold War, how have some of these crisis in, in terms of the uh, uh, intra-alliance relations being managed and what can they tell us for today? Yeah, so I think the big lesson, it kind of goes back to Churchill's famous comment that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them. And so we, we often forget just how brutal the intra-alliance fights were during the Cold War. I mean, the United States was constantly threatening to pick up and leave the Europeans to fend for themselves if they didn't, you know, approve German rearmament or, uh, and this this sounds very familiar, pay us more money to offset the cost of our military presence. That that was a big issue in the US-German relationship in the 1960s. And, and wouldn't you know it, it remains an issue uh, today. And, and, you know, if you go back to the um, Siberian pipeline dispute uh, in the early 1980s, there are really clear echoes, uh, I guess the, the Nord Stream 2 debate, there are really clear echoes of the earlier pipeline dispute then. And so the question was never, you know, could you get perfect coordination or cooperation from your allies? It was, could you get enough to maintain some degree of cohesion against a common threat? And the answer was yes. And one of the reasons the answer was yes was because um, the United States and its allies, frankly, just worked tirelessly at alliance management during the, the Cold War. And so, um, you know, this was a preoccupation of every American president and every American secretary of state. And we invested a lot in developing deeply institutionalized alliances, in part because that institutionalization could help promote cooperation and sort of uh, tamp down the tensions when political relationships were frayed. And so, uh, you know, we were ultimately successful in holding the free world together during the Cold War. In some ways, the challenge is a little bit more difficult now because the geography, say, of the US-China competition is, is so different. And so, um, you know, Korea and Australia are both US allies they don't have the same threat perceptions vis-a-vis -vis China. They're a long way apart. And neither of them has the same threat perception that Taiwan does, which is not a US ally, but is sort of an ambiguous uh, partner of sorts. Uh, the second reason is that China has more tools of um, economic attraction and coercion than the Soviet Union did. And so it is better able to play on the differences between allies uh, than the Soviet Union was. Even, even Putin does it better than the Soviet Union did with, with more limited resources. That said, I think that we're moving in the right direction. And maybe I'll just talk about China for reasons of, of time. If, if you think about the degree of multilateral cooperation there is vis-a-vis -vis China now compared to what it was five years ago, it's, it's just night and day difference. The Quad was revived and now is like a real thing as opposed to just sort of a talking 
point. Um, you know, AUKUS, I think, has significant potential over the long term, although we're still trying to figure out sort of exactly what the payoff from that will be. You see um, the Japanese and the Australian governments talking more explicitly and more assertively about the role they might play in a Taiwan crisis. And so we're unlikely to get an Asian NATO or an Indo-Pacific NATO or something that looks exactly like uh, a Cold War model. But I think we're getting um, uh, sort of more and more overlapping uh, areas of allied and partner cooperation vis-a-vis -vis China. And that, that's really important in shaping the system so that it constrains Chinese assertiveness. That's excellent. Um, and uh, again, mindful of, of time here, um, I'm going to try to combine actually these two questions where um, for a long time in the in terms of Australian political discourse, we've heard this line that there's nothing wrong with having US as the major security ally and China is a major trading partner, right? And obviously that uh, uh, kind of discourse uh, came to a halt precisely because of the change in, in paradigm uh, when it comes to uh, the makeup of the international system. And obviously this being the era of great power rivalry. Um, if you were to advise, uh, say Australian government, and this is some, uh, you know, gratuitous advice at the moment, uh, but I hope they, they find a way to, to remunerate re you. Um, what would be uh, the, the kind of key things that uh, you would stress as uh, the lessons that middle powers such as Australia can take and the way they can chart their course forward? Well, it would certainly be un unsolicited advice um, at, at the very least, but I think the, I guess one, one point I would make is that um, we often understate the importance of medium power allies and, and great power competitions. I mean, there's a tendency to focus on the US and Soviet Union in the Cold War, the US uh, and China today, but the reality is that uh, most great power competitions are competitions over the loyalties of and influence with third countries, right? And, and those can be you know, frontline states like Taiwan uh, or Ukraine, they can be uh, close allies like Japan or, or Australia, which means that um, the capabilities those countries can bring, bring to bear economically, diplomatically, militarily uh, are quite important. The second way in which I think, you know, sort of medium-sized allies uh, are, are quite important is they sometimes bring, um, you know, regional expertise to bear that the United States does not have. And so you could think about, for instance, you know, the South Pacific as an area that's going to be very important to US-China cooperation, where Australia may very well have deeper relationships and a better feel for events than the United States does. And, and so you can get a very productive division of labor or at least mutually reinforcing efforts in some of these uh, areas. And then I guess the, the final point I would make is that uh, I think one of the things that the US government is gonna be looking for um, you know, regardless of who is the next president, this isn't a Trump, it's not a Biden thing, is probably a greater degree of reciprocity in its relationships with uh, allies in the Indo-Pacific in, in particular. And this can take destructive forms, like when we hector the South Koreans and try to, you know, hold them upside down and shake them so that more money falls out of their pockets and the host nations support 
uh, agreements. It can also take constructive forms where we have very candid discussions with, say, the Japanese, and we say, okay, what's the flip side of Article 5 in our, in our treaty arrangement? What will you do to help if our bases are attacked in the Western Pacific? And I think there are similar conversations that could be had with uh, Australia or other U.S. allies uh, as well. And so those are three areas, I think, in which um, Australia is poised to, to play a very important role in this competition. And I'll use the moderator's prerogative for a very quick final question uh, around uh, Cold War analogies. Do you see any space for uh, states or blocks of states remaining non-aligned, for instance? Or um, this term, I, I think um, Bruce Gentleson, uh, who's a professor at Duke University, I, I think you've, you've spent uh, some time there. Um, has said that uh, there is this uh, kind of phenomenon of pluralization of diplomacy, that some countries, uh, you know, who are uh, American allies still develop uh, relations with China, with Russia, actually. Um, do you see this being kind of a, an exception or do you think we will uh, uh, have some sort of emergence of, of a, a kind of different kind of a, of a block of, of uh, states that are forced to do that? Because obviously these days uh, your security competitor might actually be your trading partner, which is quite unlike uh, the, the Cold War period. So for exactly that reason, I think we're unlikely to get as stark a division of the international environment as we had during the Cold War. Although I, I do actually think that the momentum of the US-China rivalry is going to carry us towards a more bifurcated world than we probably imagine at the moment. If you look at the ways in which um, you know, technological systems are likely to fragment along geopolitical lines, for instance, you definitely could see more of a shift toward bipolarity. But even in that circumstance, uh, there will be lots of countries that will see an opportunity either to uh, straddle the fence or even better from their perspective to play both sides against each other. And so, uh, you know, there, there we may see uh, an example of countries that say, you know, try to get support from the United States and sort of hint that if we don't give it, then China might end up with a military base in that uh, country or that seek uh, loans and development assistance from one side with the implied or explicit threat that they may go the other way if they don't get what they want. Th this is normal. This happened all the time during the Cold War. There were uh, states that were truly masters of, of this thing. Uh, you know, Yugoslavia, of course, was a very successful pioneer of the non-aligned uh, movement, and Tito was one of the most ruthless practitioners of geopolitics that we saw during the second half of the 20th century. And so precisely because this competition is going to be a competition over the loyalty of third parties, it will create lots of space for interesting maneuvering on the part of those countries. Hal, thank you so much for this. Uh, we, we are just making it uh, before uh, the top of the hour. Uh, this has been most interesting and educational uh, webinar. Thank you for, for uh, showing us at least a glimpse of your book, uh, which I would encourage everyone to buy and read. Uh, and uh, I'm also glad that we managed to at least uh, refer to uh, some of the interesting developments on the infrastructure diplomacy front 
done plenty uh, there to think uh, and talk about and, and to study about, uh, which we also do at the US Study Center. Uh, but for now, uh, again, a huge thanks for uh, uh, spending an hour of, of your busy day uh, with us. It, it's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation.